Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today on this gloomy Thursday, Natalie? Uh, I think busy as uh, the court is. Um, I think quite, you know, expectedly a week before the election, the court has been super active on election related rulings. And we're going to be getting into that. But of course, the big, big news of the week is that we have a new justice. That's right. Uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was uh, sworn in as the 103rd Associate Justice of the Supreme Court on Tuesday morning. She was administered the judicial oath by Chief Justice John Roberts in a little private ceremony in the Supreme Court's East Conference Room. Uh, I think it was attended by all sitting members of the court, with the exception of Justice Stephen Breyer, who stayed at home via Zoom, didn't want to, thought it was maybe not as safe to travel. So he was at home in Cambridge. He might have been busy with a pot roast as we were discussing yeah. off air before. <laughs> I have a feeling he's really leaned into the work from home thing and he's, you know, yeah. not about to make the trip down for, for something like this. No. Which I can appreciate. <laughs> I can appreciate. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, uh, a man after my own heart, for sure. So with the confirmation and, and the oaths taken, uh, she is immediately a part of the court. Um, I believe she's taken over uh, the late Justice Ginsburg's chambers. Yeah, and pretty much with orientation now all but done, uh, the court said she's able to immediately start participating in cases, although um, Justice Barrett did not take that opportunity in a a couple of cases that came down last night. We're going to get into that. But basically, she's coming into the court, as you said, Natalie, just a few days before the election. It's not lost on a lot of the Democrats and progressives who fear that she's been essentially placed on the court in order to you know, provide that ninth justice to break some of the deadlocks we've seen in some of these election cases. So they are very fearful that she will kind of tip the hands in favor of the president who nominated her. Obviously, President Trump has said that he, in fact, wanted a ninth justice in order to resolve those disputes. So why don't we just get into it? We're going to talk about all the election news that happened this week at the Supreme Court. There was a lot of it, starting with a case that was resolved just a few hours before she was confirmed on Monday. Uh, And that was in the Wisconsin case. Now, why don't you walk us through that one? So, you know, just in terms of this week and all the election rulings that are coming out, most of them are basically revolving around mail-in ballot deadlines and whether they can be extended. Uh, You know, in, in Wisconsin's case, there had been an argument that for this key battleground state with COVID cases soaring, there should be an extension. And a federal judge uh, actually issued the say, said this hard and fast absentee voter deadline violated Wisconsin's constitution and and he pushed the deadline a few more days. Uh, Well, the conservative majority in this case was like, well, you are not the proper player to be saying that. Um, you know, they, they they really came down pretty strongly. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, all pens of concurrences and opinions here. Uh, and they, they said, you know, in, in this area, a federal court should not be the one deciding what a proper state election deadline is. That's a really interesting point because I think that holds the key to understanding why some of these cases are coming out differently um, at the Supreme Court. So moving on to Thursday, uh, the Supreme Court actually denied a request by Republicans in Pennsylvania to basically speed up its consideration of another mail-in ballot case. So Republicans, if you recall, 
had previously asked the court to stay a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that extended the deadline in that state by three days for receiving mail-in ballots. Now, this was before Justice Barrett was on the court. So the court splits four to four, and it upholds the lower court, or I should say the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's extension of the deadline. Well, what happened was Republicans went back to the Supreme Court and basically asked the court to take up its case on the merits, so not in in the posture of a, of a stay application. And they wanted the court to speed up its consideration so that they could rule on this extension and strike it down before the election day. So there was a lot of speculation about whether Justice Amy Coney Barrett's first vote on the Supreme Court was going to be to break this deadlock and essentially side with Republicans in Pennsylvania to basically throw out every single mail-in ballot received after the election day on November 3rd. We got a really interesting update in the case. Yes, she did not. <laughs> um, it, I, I, you know, in this case and in a very similar, um, actually two very similar North Carolina rulings that also came down with the Pennsylvania case blocking similar deadline extensions, um, Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett recused herself. That's going to take some getting uh, you know, used to. <laughs> sorry. Um and the the Supreme Court came out with um, a statement basically saying that because she had not had a chance to uh, read up on all of the filings in these cases, uh, that she was going to step out and not, and not weigh in. Right. And actually, a little sidebar here, which was an interesting drama unfolding yesterday, was that one of the counties in Pennsylvania actually filed a brief asking for her to recuse herself prior to her decision to not participate because she didn't have enough time. There was actually a Pennsylvania county that said she shouldn't weigh in on the case at all because it would engulf the Supreme Court in controversy with her, this new Trump appointee, you know, participating in the case after Trump has promised that his justice is going to side with him in an election dispute. Anyway, a whole side story there is that the county council actually voted to withdraw that brief. So there was a lot of controversy there. It was a little bit beside the point. It was kind of a sideshow a little bit. But as you say, yeah, she decides that she doesn't actually have enough time to read up on all the motions and the briefs in both the Pennsylvania and the North Carolina case. Um, I think it's really important to point out, though, that even though she recuses from this motion in the Pennsylvania case, and she does not participate in the North Carolina decision to um, you know, keep that extended deadline. This is not to say that Justice Amy Coney Barrett has decided she's going to recuse herself from all election litigation. I mean, there's a difference between saying, I didn't have enough time to read up on the briefs because I was just sworn in on Tuesday morning, and I feel it inappropriate to participate in all of these election cases because of my close affiliation with President Trump who's insisted, again, that his justice would vote with him in an election dispute. And in fact, the reason that's important is because Justice Alito writes a concurrence in this Pennsylvania case, and he says, okay, the Supreme Court is not going to speed up the Republicans' appeal to get rid of all the uh, ballots received after the election day. However, you know, we can still consider this case after the election day. So, Maybe we do take up the petition down the road and, um, you know, we decide, you know, after careful consideration that these votes are not valid, what have you. So he basically keeps the issue on the table. And in fact, um, the Pennsylvania attorney general has informed the Supreme Court 
that they are segregating ballots received after Election Day in the case of such a ruling from the Supreme Court. So they are putting their ducks in a row and saying, okay, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, the Supreme Court could potentially take this case up after the election and decide to throw out all these ballots because they disagreed with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And Justice Barrett, theoretically, because she only recused herself because of a timing constraint, could potentially, once again, be a decisive factor in such a in such a case. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Pennsylvania is really shaping up to be the state and the battleground to watch for election-related litigation in the Supreme Court. Um, next week, who knows what will happen uh, or what co- uh, you know contests uh, will be coming out from there. But it's fair to say that there seems to be like legal battle brewing. Yeah, um, and, and a lot of know, on all sides. Right, and I think a lot of um, you know. Voting rights groups and everyone in Pennsylvania are telling people that, you know, this is still an open question. So if you if you haven't sent your mail-in ballot at this point, you might as well just vote in person or drop it off at a drop box or hand it into a, an, an election precinct or a designated uh, receptacle or what have you. So because of, you know, there's just a question mark over the whole issue of whether some of these ballots will be counted. So, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, she is this wild card, essentially, uh, on all this election related litigation but i think you know the other i I, i'm not sure wild card's the right word but the other swing here that's shaping up is chief justice roberts um you know in in terms of like what's happening with what's getting blocked and what's not and you know I think that for me, from from what I've been reading, really comes down is that Chief Justice Roberts does seem to be giving a lot more weight when it's a state court or a state legislator or a state actor that's pushing for the ex- ballot extension versus in, you know, Wisconsin's case that we talked about earlier, a federal court. Yeah. Or, or in the case of North Carolina, where it was the, I believe it was the State Board of Elections that you know, enters into what is essentially a consent decree with certain groups, you know, adopting some of these changes to its election procedures, like a, a, a deadline extension or doing away with the witness requirement and something having to do with postmarks. But yeah, I mean, the point is, he has been overly deferential to states, whether it be a state Supreme Court interpreting state law or, um, you know, a, 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 a state secretary of state, you know, throughout the pandemic. Um, and it's just, it, I think it goes to, you know, two parts. One is his kind of embrace of the whole idea of federalism and shared power between the federal government and the states and state's own authority to craft its own response, but also his kind of institutional leanings. Like he can't, he knows that he can't just side only with Republicans and dispute after dispute because of the way in which people on the, the man on the street, he says, will react to some of those um, rulings from the court. Um, but yeah, I think that's really that's a really interesting point you make in in what's kind of driving his his seemingly contrary votes in some of these cases. I, I think we'd be remiss though to not um, also mention uh, Justice Kavanaugh in this co- conversation about you know state versus federal, who's an appropriate player because he kind of stirred up some controversy with his concurrence in that Wisconsin case that we were talking about. Um, you know, he uh, cited Bush v. Gore, uh, which I think a lot of uh, listeners will remember Kavanaugh was actually part of that case as a lawyer uh, back in the day. Um, 
and it was an interesting uh, point to his concurrence. It was a bit of a caveat, essentially, to this, you know, give more deference to state courts. He's like, well, true, but citing a, a Rehnquist uh, concurrence from Bush v. Gore, he was like, you know, state courts do not have a blank check to rewrite state election laws for federal elections. Um, and, and this was really, I think, seen as a potential opening, uh, you know, for the argument that, you know, in a, in if there's a big contest about um, a state court kind of rewriting or or tweaking state election laws that the Supreme Court does kind of have this federal, this right to, to, to weigh in um, and to perhaps reverse course. Um, so that, that was, I think was a really interesting uh, point uh, that, that was brought up um, and highly controversial, uh, as you might expect. Yeah, and I think another pretty controversial part of his that opinion was basically embracing what some people saw as Trump's rhetoric over the whole issue of mail-in ballots, saying that states want to be able to decide winners and losers on election night and that, you know, they're they're trying to avoid quote suspicions of impropriety, he says, about absentee ballots flowing in after election day and potentially flipping the results of an election. Now <laughs> this whole idea of, you know, ballots coming in later in an election that are, you know, otherwise valid, flipping the results of an election is something that Justice Elena Kagan took a lot of exception to and says, you know, these are the results of the election. There's no res- there's no results of an election until all the valid ballots have been counted. And so he was kind of dinged for that. Um, another part of his opinion that people took exception to was his characterization that the state of Vermont actually had pretty much maintained its election rules. Uh, Of course, Vermont had done a lot to accommodate um, voters during the pandemic, including, you know, automatic uh, ballots being sent out to basically every registered voter in the state. And so Vermont's secretary of state actually files a request at the Supreme Court that Justice Kavanaugh corrects his opinion. And in fact, just last night, uh, the Supreme Court uploaded a new version of his concurrence that kind of tweaked one of the phrases referring to Vermont in that opinion, basically accommodating for that request. So definitely a controversial decision. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on just what other election-related litigation uh, comes out of the court. Um, a lot of these has been coming out in the evening, so it is, you know, possible that we'll be getting one between uh when we're recording this uh this afternoon on thursday and when this comes out thursday evening (laughs) so uh apologies in advance (laughs) (laughs) um also uh starting uh next week uh we will be having a new set of oral arguments that's right the supreme court is back for its november session uh Next week, um, notwithstanding the election that's going on and some of the, you know, emergency applications and filings that we might see, but this is one thing we can definitely count on happening for sure. The court's going to hear a number of cases, but among them, a really interesting First Amendment case that we've talked about on the show before. It's about essentially whether Philadelphia violated the Constitution when it stopped working with a Catholic foster care agency because of its stated policy of refusing to place children with same-sex couples. This has you know, pretty massive implications for uh, LGBTQ rights and claims of religious liberty in 
you know, a number of different contexts. So we'll certainly be back um, to talk about what the justices had to say about that case. There was also another really interesting juvenile law case, Natalie, that you've been uh, keeping your eye on on the docket. Yeah, Jones v. Mississippi really is just the latest, I think, in a string of juvenile justice cases that the court has been taking up um, in recent years to expand certain protections for juveniles. Uh, You know, they've previously ruled, you know, juveniles really can't be sentenced to death or, or life without parole under certain circumstances. So in in this case, um, it actually is revisiting that, you know, whether a juvenile has to be technically deemed permanently incorrigible um, to have a sentence of life without parole imposed on them. So so I know I'm definitely watching that case. Um, It'll be interesting to see whether the the expansion of of certain protections uh, keeps keeps going with with Jones v. Mississippi. Well, I think that about does it uh, for this episode. There's been a lot to go over, but it was a pleasure chatting with you, Natalie, about everything. Likewise. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Daniel Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Haley Knopf and Matt Fair. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please leave us a review. <laughs>